Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, convicted at 17 of a brutal crime in Brooklyn, exonerated at 46. Mark Denny speaks to us about his conviction, incarceration, and his recent release from prison. I think I'm adjusting very good, but I'm still damaged, though, because the more I adjust and the more I move forward in life and the more I see things and the more I realize how much I don't know, I still haven't gotten the full impression of what I suffered yet. In 1988, four men were convicted of robbing a Brooklyn Burger King and raping one of the employees. One of those men, a boy really, at 17 years of age, was Mark Denny, and he was sentenced to nearly 50 years in prison. But there were problems with the case. No physical evidence connected him to the crime. He had a solid alibi. The victim ID'd him only after questionable police conduct, and Denny consistently maintained his innocence, even when it eliminated the possibility of an early release. After more than a decade, Cardozo Law School's Innocence Project took on his case. But under District Attorney Charles Hines, Brooklyn prosecutors wouldn't take another look, despite having received letters from the three other culprits that Denny was not involved in the crime. Many more years would pass before the current DA, Eric Gonzalez, ordered the office's Conviction Review Unit to re-examine the case. And they found that the police had used flawed methods to connect Denny to the crime. Here's how it's described by the Innocence Project. Detectives showed the female victim a photo array that included Denny's photograph, and she did not select it. The next day, the detective placed Denny in a live lineup, and he was selected by the female victim, but not the male victim. This case presents a textbook example of what is known as commitment effect, where a witness's pure memory of the perpetrator's identity is contaminated by prior exposure to the same suspect in a different identification procedure. Here, the female victim, who was previously exposed to Mr. Denny in a photo array, selected him in a subsequent identification procedure. Alternatively, the male victim who was not previously exposed to Mr. Denny in a photo array did not identify him. After spending 30 years in jail, Denny was exonerated and released in December 2017. On Tuesday this week, he participated in a panel on criminal justice reform and wrongful convictions at the Barclays Center, a partnership between the Brooklyn Nets and the Innocence Project. And he also spoke with us in what was his most wide-ranging interview to date on the subject of his conviction, incarceration, and exoneration. Here's that conversation. Mark Denny, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate your being here. Um, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you end up incarcerated? Well, I ended up incarcerated mainly because of association. You know, my cousin got caught up in some criminal act, and because of our relationship, that's pretty much how we became connected. And what were you charged with over 30 years ago? I was charged ago? with rape. I was charged with sodomy. I was charged with robbery, coercion, charges of that nature. And what year was this? This was in 1988. Okay. So in 1988, there was a robbery at a fast food restaurant. Yes. And there were two employees working there. And one of the employees, a woman, 
uh, was raped by multiple people, um, and that is what you were charged with. Is that correct? Yes. Tell me a little bit about how you were fingered for this crime, which you did not commit. Well, as it turned out, me and my cousin, who was one of the uh, perpetrators in this case, we had got arrested in a prior case. And in that case, we got arrested because the car was pulled over. The car was supposed to be stolen, but it turned out that the car belonged to my aunt. And in the course of that pullover in that car, you know, a weapon was found in the car and we got locked up for that. And it just so happened that the store that we was in front of, the people alleged that not only was the store robbed prior, but the same guys that was at the scene, which was my cousin and his friend, was the ones that robbed it before. So I guess in the course of all of that, the cops just started doing the investigation and they found out of an incident in Brooklyn and they made a connection and I guess with the uh, forensic evidence they had and they just pretty much just made the connection but being that I was a relative and I was with them at one point in time to them it was like okay he was probably with them all the time so mm-hmm. that's how that kind of played out. So you were deemed guilty by association. By association, right. yes. So you were in the car with your cousin, the police stopped you. Uh, your cousin had perpetrated this crime, this this robbery and rape with some of his friends, and they just sort of looped you in with them. How old were you at the time? I was 16 going on 17. Okay. And you were tried as an adult? I assume so because of the amount of time I was given. What was that amount of time? 19 to 57 years. Did you have an attorney? Was it a public defender? No, I had a private attorney, and I guess he did all that he was able to do. I wasn't really impressed with his representation because there was conflict between me and the lawyer. We wasn't really on the same page. We argued about a lot in the case, you know, about money and payment and things of that nature. So it was like a frustrating relationship, but I had a private attorney, and, you know, I don't think he did a good job, but as it turned out, I ended up blowing trial with him anyway. What did that feel like to be 16 years old and charged with a crime that you knew you didn't commit and facing that much prison time? It was scary. I mean, the whole thing was scary. The whole thing was like mind-blowing. It was like a shock. It was like, you know, just being snatched out of one world into a totally different world where my, my, my mind was like on fire the whole entire time because, you know, not being believed, that was like, to me, that was like it was so mind-blowing. You know, no one, it was like no one believed the cops, the judge, the DA. I don't even think my lawyer really believed, but, you know, then they had to sign over the courtroom and God we trust, and I'm going through all of this. So to me, it was like, it was just, it was just scary. It was, it was a shock. It was a hell of a shock. And as a child, you know, I was kind of like helpless. I was helpless. You know, I was helpless because I was placed in a predicament and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I didn't even know how to begin to even get up out of it other than to keep protesting my innocence. But there was no place for the truth at that whole entire moment. For the whole 30 years, it was like almost no place for the truth. Did anyone believe you and stand by you the entire time? I had family members that did believe in me. You know, I had my cousins that did believe in me, you know. My mother believed in me. You know, different people believed in me, but it was always, you know, the amount of time that I ended up doing in prison caused some of the people that did believe in me to doubt after a while because, you know, being innocent, okay, like enough is enough. So after so many years passing, you know, a lot of people probably did lose uh, hope and faith, but they just held on because of family ties. But 
that's just the reality of it. You think some people were like, well, if he didn't do it, he would have been out of jail by now. Yes, that was like a general bias that I was subject to throughout the whole entire predicament from the beginning to the end. Not mainly from my family, but, you know, from so-called friends and people I would meet along the way. Mm. You know, no one seemed to believe. It was like it was very interesting for me to see that, you know, no matter what, even the churches, it was like it was a mind-blowing experience because it kind of opened my eyes to the fact that it showed me how vulnerable people's minds are and how susceptible it is to be misled by things that are not truthful. And that's really, really scary, especially when that's happening to the people who you have to rely on to protect you and things of that nature. So I kind of felt like my back was against the wall. I think that it's scary for people to think that institutions can fail so terribly, that we live in a society where we have to believe that innocent people don't go to jail for 30 years. And then when it emerges that innocent people do go to jail for 30 years, it sort of shakes people's faith in the system. Yes, it does. It's like we are conditioned to be judgmental without not really having the facts of things because in life, you know, a lot of things is subject to our opinions because not everything we are actually in a position to see or bear witness to. So our opinion plays a big part in the, the judgments that we come to. Did you always believe that your name would be cleared? I did in the beginning. In the beginning, I believe, and that belief is what kind of helped me because, you know, as a child, the reality of my situation, it hit me, but it really, really didn't hit me until like years later in jail because under that childhood mentality, a lot of the critical and significant things wasn't really sinking in, it wasn't really registering. So, you know, it was at the moment that I blew trial and they came back with a guilty verdict. I mean, throughout the whole trial when the witness was pointing at me and saying that he was part of the people that attacked me, I felt so, I felt so bad at that moment, man, because you know, I felt so hurt because of what happened to her. But to actually hear her said that, it was like, you know, I felt so alone, you know. I felt so and completely alone, you know. But at the end of the day, it was my belief that I was innocent that actually kind of, like, kept me. And that belief hung with me for a very long time. But then after I started to put in appeals and they started to deny it and things wasn't working out, gradually I started to not lose the faith in my innocence, but started to lose the faith in people. Because it seemed like if they wasn't believing me, then what else could they possibly believe? You know, my condition was so bad, it actually forced me into being religious. You know, I was exposed to religion before I locked up, but I wasn't really a religious person. But my conviction forced me, it actually doomed me to the faith of actually believing in God. And that's actually where I actually found my peace of mind, I got a little bit of clarity. I even got a lot of uh, insights on, you know what I'm saying, how to go about, you know, reaching out for help. But it was, it was really dark. I kind of lost faith along the way mm. because after so long, I was like, you know, and then I was praying and nothing was happening through prayer. And, you know, I just kind of like lost faith overall. I kind of lost faith overall. But in the beginning, I was very optimistic. But that light just kept getting put out and put out and put out and put out. And it came to a point where it was almost put out because, you know, I started to contemplate suicide. I did lose faith along the way. But it was revived based on different things that happened. 
family, me reaching out to the Innocent Project, them accepting my case. It kind of revived hope. But then even after that, I start to lose hope again because it took so long after they intervened for something to happen. And at, the, and at that point, you know, all the feedback I was getting was making me very, you know, um, doubtful about my chances of getting out because they was telling me that the forensic evidence was lost for whatever reason. And it's like I was clinging to that because, you know, my word was my word since the very beginning and that didn't hold no weight, obviously. So the only thing that was left was the scientific aspect. And once I heard that that was in there, I kind of like, kind of like almost snuffed out my light. Mm -hmm. You know, but it came to a point where it boiled down to the truth, the bare, honest, raw truth is what got me out of jail. You know, so at the end of the day, <clears throat> I'm happy for that. You know what I'm saying? I'm happy to see that, you know, in the midst of all this darkness, you know, there's always a spark of hope. Tell me a little bit about your involvement with the Innocence Project and how um, how you found them and then the work that they were able to do. Well, it was interesting because I kind of discovered a whole bunch of Innocent Project that's out there trying to help mm -hmm. people. And I took a bunch of addresses and I started to write. And the one in Manhattan was one of them. And several of them responded. Several of them actually accepted my case. And the Innocent Project in Manhattan just how it happened to be one of them. When the rest found out that the Innocent Project in Manhattan was interested, they kind of like backed off because I guess the uh, Innocent Project at Cardozo was like top of the line and they had the resources and the manpower. So they were like, and everything. they got you. So they're like, you know what, we're gonna back off and let them take care of it. If they can't do it for whatever reason, we'll pick it back up. And you know, I was kind of happy because all these different help was coming at me. And sure enough, the Innocent Project reached out to me and wrote me and told me they had my case. They was going to look into it. I felt so good. I felt happy. I felt revived. I was like, yes. But then when they wrote me back later on and told me that they couldn't do nothing because there was no forensic evidence in the case, they couldn't find the evidence to be tested for DNA, I kind of like just seemed like it was some type of dark force just following me, just snuffing out every light of hope mm -hmm. that was popping up. Right, because a lot of Innocence Projects step in when uh, there There's was forensics. no forensic evidence, yes. and now they can go back and re-examine evidence, yes. but in your case, that didn't exist. In my case, it just it existed, but somehow it just it became non-existent. Right. So it actually took eight eight years working with the Innocence Project. That was the first stage that I'm explaining. Once they decided that they couldn't help me, it took probably like, 15 years maybe after that. Wow. What happened was the same project had my case. It was a lawyer named Nina Morris, and she reviewed my case, and she seen that it was just sitting there, and it was closed, and she decided to, for whatever reason, she decided that the case should remain open. So I guess she kept it open and did her own field work, and whenever she got the type of evidence she felt that was strong enough, she got other people involved and reopened the case, and just everything took off, and here I am. And initially, you were um, you were fingered by the woman who was raped, and I believe that the police showed her a lineup of photos, and your photo was among them, and she did not identify you. Yes. And then later, there was an in-person lineup, and she did identify you, which has been called into question as bad procedure. Yes. Right. Because she um, saw you the previous day in the photos and then saw you again in the lineup and you actually were not the assailant. Yeah, that's the procedure that was employed. That's the procedure that was used to, I guess, to manipulate the witness to make an identification. Right. And that's the procedure that just shows how corrupt 
the police department was at the time and has the potential to continue being because before I was even arrested, I didn't even really know that part until all the evidence started to come out of trial. I didn't realize that my picture was shown to the witness. Right, right. But the thing is, is that, you know, when you a suspect, if this is the only witness that is alleging that certain things happened, and you show this witness my picture, and this witness did not pick me out, at that point, I'm no longer a suspect. Right. They have to go by a sequence of evidence in order to give them the authority to do certain things legally. Right. And in the sequence of things, you showed the witness a picture of me, and the witness didn't pick me out. I was right, no so you longer should have been excluded from Why would you come and get me three days later and put me back in front of the same witness? Right, right. For what other purpose? You're not the judge. You're not the jury. You see what I'm saying? So, you know, like I said, it was an ugly case. Rape is an ugly case, as I learned throughout the course of my experience. You know, I became very sensitive to just sex offense, period. You know, it's nasty, it's disgusting. And as I experienced, it brings out the worst in everybody. It brings mm -hmm. out the worst in the cops, you know, the lawyers, the judges. You know, even when I was arrested for the whole entire 30 years, the staff, the security, the, the inmates, it just brought out the worst in everybody. Mm -hmm. It brought out the worst in everybody. And it showed me, again, like I said from the very beginning, just how vulnerable our minds is, how easily the mind could just be led on a tangent and... And the mind could just be so convinced that it's correct and it's just destroying something else altogether. It kind of forces people, man, to just lose total faith and just authority, period. I haven't come to that point, thank God, because I read a lot. While I was in there, my experience put me in a position to read a lot. That was part of me reaching out and crying. It's just to fill my soul with all different type of information and knowledge, just to give me, because I was really trying to understand why. That was my biggest question. Why this? Why that? Why this? Why that? It was just a big question mark for the whole 30 years. And they kind of put me on a mission of reading all different type of books on psychology, you know, or just a little bit of everything, philosophy, just to give me a bigger understanding of why things work the way that they work in life. And, you know, one of the things that I learned that humbled me about the whole entire experience, which is what I believe kind of kept me afloat, is that... <laughs> We really need each other. We really need each other because information is only as reliable as the people that we rely on or the information we rely on. And if those two things is unreliable, then everything is going to fall apart. So we really, we really need each other. We really need each other. We really need each other in a way that the truth demands. You know what I'm saying? And coming to that point, overall, it's like it's a problem. It's a problem getting everyone on that page right there. Mm -hmm. And that's why injustice continues, because we're not on the same page where it comes to the truth. You know, you have people stepping up into positions, into noble positions, but they're not being noble while they're in those positions. They're just totally losing sight of why they're there, and they're abusing their discretion. Mark, talk to me a little bit about the event at the Barclays Center and about why you're speaking out about your particular ordeal. What do you hope people learn from it? How do you hope to help people with your story? The event tonight at the Barclay, the panel is supposed to be about the reform that's going on, you know, nationwide with the criminal justice system. You know, trying to prevent more unlawful convictions mm -hmm. and just, you know, crooked police kind of, they're trying to uplift the integrity level of the whole entire system. And the panel is specifically dealing with that. I'm a part of it because, as we know, I just came up out of a 30-year imprisonment unlawfully confined. So I had a personal first-hand experience 
of the different areas in the system that needs to be focused on to make it work. And, you know, me speaking out and telling my story is a part of me helping out with that mission. Mm-hmm. You were released a little over a year ago. Yes. What has it been like not only re-entering society, but also re-entering society with your name cleared? You know, when I first came home, I was so, it was just like it was a total shock and darkness when I went into jail. When I came home, it was like a total, it was just, I was just, I was so happy. That was like the happiest moment ever. Because it was like all the doubts and stuff that I had that formed, all the monsters that formulated in my mind over all the years, it was like they was just taunting me the whole entire time. And at that point, it was like everything just collapsed and my whole entire being realized that I wasn't doomed as I actually thought I was doomed. So I was so happy. I was very happy. I was excited. Mm-hmm. And I'm dealing with life, I think, very effectively. I'm getting along with people. I've always been a social person. You know, the Innocent Project has helped me out tremendously. They helped me get a job. I'm working right now. I'm living by myself in Manhattan. You know, they helped me get that together. You know, they're just doing so much to keep me on track and to make, you know, my uh, acclimation process more easier. So I think I'm adjusting very good. But I'm still damaged, though, because the more I adjust and the more I move forward in life and the more I see things and the more I realize how much I don't know and how far back I am and how, you know, dysfunctional I am in certain areas, it just makes me more mindful of exactly you know, what was done to me cycle. I still haven't gotten the full impression of what I suffered yet. I'm mm-hmm. still waking up to that reality day by day, you know? I can't imagine. Do you have any advice, uh, maybe somebody listening or watching has a family member or a friend who has been wrongfully incarcerated? Do you have any advice for loved ones of somebody who might be serving time for a crime he or she didn't commit? What I could say in that regards is that as long as the person is claiming to be innocent, then the family member should hold fast to those words because that's not an easy claim to make. You know, one of the things my experience has shown me is that if you are truly, in fact, innocent, it may take time, you know what I'm saying, but the truth, the truth will come out. The truth will come out. It's hard for the truth to really be altered, you know what I'm saying? Lies has the tendency to make it seem that way, but one of the things that about truth is that the truth is always going to remain the truth. And if you have honest people that are really searching and trying to discover what that truth is, they will find that truth. You know, so people that are lawfully confined and have loved ones on the outside that are going through the stigma of dealing with, you know, whatever... That person is charged with, if it's a sex offense, I could imagine, because, you know, the stigma that comes behind that is so heavy. You know, everyone is disgusted by you, not trusted by no one. And I know what that's like. And for the family to go through it, I could only imagine, because... Because I lost my grandmother. I'm sorry. She suffered... I think more than I did. You know, I actually watch how my imprisonment destroyed her. It made her grow so old so fast. 
So I could imagine what it's like to have a person in prison and what they love was baby going through. It's, it's, it's very hard. It's very hard and you know, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call for everybody. It's a wake-up call for the parent. It's a wake-up call for the person that's suffering the experience. It's a wake-up call for the people that's responsible for putting you through the experience. It's just a wake-up call to everybody that that we just need to be more, I don't even know the word for it. We just need to be more fair, more impartial, more open-minded, more we just need to never give up. As long as the person is telling the truth and they're obviously innocent, the people that's behind them need to be more passionate. The person that's suffering need to be more passionate as far as reaching out. But the cries of innocent is being it's 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 it's, it's so overwhelming now, more so than than it ever was. There's a lot of people out there, there's a lot of organizations that's just sensitive to that, that's just waiting to just spring into action because of that because everyone now knows that as long as a person is really innocent the truth will be discovered so you know help is on the way all they have to really do is just hold fast and just keep fighting and just keep encouraging and supporting each other you know these things is going to happen because we are not perfect you know we're not perfect we make errors in judgment I make a lot of errors in judgment that's one of the things that humbled me about my experience is that at the end of the day if the shoes were on the other foot, I may have been the one to brought a judgment against another person that may have been innocent. That's because an it's just so easy to do that. It's so easy. But when the error is honest, then the correction should be quick and immediate and just as with the same passion. There's nothing wrong with making honest error and correction. I don't think that. But when you make the error and you refuse to correct it, that's the, that's, that's the harm right there. I think that's an incredibly generous thing to say um, from someone in your in your position. Mark Denny, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's such an important story for people to hear. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate your coming on the show. That's the show for today. We'll be back on Monday when Aaron Edwards, host for the Brooklyn Stop on the Pop-Up Magazine Tour, will pop by. Hope you can join us. BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 